Welcome to Raven Debriefs. In this episode, Aboriginal rights lawyer Bruce McIver speaks to the promise and challenge of pursuing Indigenous rights through the courts. We will also hear from Raven's Campaigns Director, Anna Simeon, about the exciting new climate challenge launched by Wet'suwet'en. She'll talk about this case in terms of its potential to protect the rights of not only Indigenous peoples, but of all Canadians. Throughout the episode, you'll hear voices of young and Indigenous people reading from Supreme Court rulings and from case filing documents. Join us for a lively, story-filled episode that will unpack some misconceptions around whose land this is anyway, and how we can all be part of reshaping this country we call home. Um, Bruce McTiver, principal of First People's Law. And I talked to a lot of people across the country about Section 35. And one of the things that I emphasize all the time is what's the fundamental purpose? Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution states, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal people in Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. The purpose is to ensure that distinctive Indigenous peoples are perpetuated into the future. And the duty to consult is part of that. This is where we, the fundamental case, the Haida case was about the future. Would there be any trees left on Haida Gwaii? And that was where the court said, we're gonna make up this new doctrine of duty to consult to ensure there is a future. There is a future for the Haida themselves, that it's not just one that is about clear cutting. From the Supreme Court Haida ruling. For more than 100 years, the Haida people have claimed title to all the lands of Haida Gwaii and the water surrounding it. The Crown, acting honorably, cannot cavalierly run roughshod over Aboriginal interests. So I think it's important to always step back and go, what's the purpose here? It's not just individual decisions, not individual projects. It's to ensure that Indigenous people are there, generations into the future, their own distinctive societies, cultures, and laws. And you can only have that if they have their specific distinctive relationship to their particular lands. And Section 35 needs to protect that relationship. Part of the problem with how the law around duty to consult has developed, ironically, it's developed on the backs of Indigenous people. They've been the ones expending their resources and time to take these cases to court. It's not governments, it's not companies who bring these cases. It's Indigenous people. RAVEN, which for those of you who don't know, stands for Respecting Aboriginal Values and Environmental Needs, has been around for more than a decade now, focused entirely on providing access to the court system for Indigenous peoples. It's just not fair that the people least served by Canadian institutions should have to pay to go to court to reshape our common future. 
Together with an incredibly dedicated community of supporters, we've helped provide resources to Indigenous peoples to take to the courts in order to have their rights recognized. Raven rejoices in Indigenous legal victories that safeguard traditional territories, fight back against open pit mining, and stand up to fossil fuel giants. This is Anna Simeon, Raven's campaign's director. These cases are extremely expensive, and we also have seen with other nations and other cases, for example, Beaver Lake Creek, that Canada and the provinces fight these cases tooth and nail. They fight it because they know that the courts are going to go by precedent, which has increasingly been in favor of upholding indigenous rights and the honor of the crown. If you bring a case, the burden of proof is on you. The case is only as good as the evidence you collect, you're able to present, you have to get credible experts. Very often it's about physical evidence. So that means labs and scientists. It's by far the most expensive portion of any case. So I think very often the perception is, oh, the lawyers, you know, get rich. They don't always give either pro bono hours or they give discounts or they wait for us to raise the money. And they are really invested with their clients and really in solidarity with their clients. But it simply costs because of partly because of these expert reports. And then if you have Canada and the provinces coming in and using delaying tactics and delaying outspend, that can be twice or three times as expensive as uh, it needs to be. But the way the law has developed, it's gone in a direction where it's more and more difficult for them to get a meaningful remedy from the court, a meaningful outcome them that respects their Section 35 rights. And this is largely because the law has gone in the direction of what's reasonable, what's in the public interest, instead of what needs to be done to ensure that the promise of Section 35 is fulfilled. From the Tsleil-Waututh decision 2018, Slaywatooth's traditional territory encompasses the proposed Westridge Marine Terminal and fuel storage facility expansion and approximately 18 kilometers of pipeline right-of-way. Approximately 45 kilometers of marine shipping route will pass within Slaywatooth's asserted traditional territory. And I think the TMX case is a perfect example of that. It's reduced to the adequacy of consultation what some of us in the profession call drive-by consultation, box ticking, did you do enough? At the end of the day, the court will give significant deference to the government decision maker. The court will apply a test of adequacy, not whether it's perfect, and the court will say this over and over again, consultation doesn't have to be perfect. Was it adequate? And then was it reasonable? At the end of the day, did the result fall within the possible realms of a reasonable outcome? As long as it does, the decision will go in the favor of government. The TMX case is a perfect example from my perspective where there needs to be a higher standard met by government, particularly for the Indigenous peoples at the end of the pipe. The people that really do face an existential threat from the increased tanker traffic in the Salish Sea 
On May 19, 2016, the National Energy Board issued its report concerning the proposed expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline system. The board made one critical error. The board unjustifiably defined the scope of the project under review not to include project-related tanker traffic. The unjustified exclusion of marine shipping from the scope of the project led to successive, unacceptable deficiencies in the board's report and recommendations. As a result, the governor and council could not rely on the board's report and recommendations when assessing the project's environmental effects and the overall public interest. Because even though the risk might be low, the outcome, if there is a disaster, is fundamentally dangerous for the people around the Salish Sea. And what it does is, I think it has a threat of undermining the entire purpose of Section 35. The purpose is to ensure these distinctive Indigenous people are perpetuated into the future. If you don't have a relationship to your waters, to your land, if that's severed by a disaster with an oil tanker, then that undermines the purpose of Section 35. And that's why I make the argument in these types of situations, higher standards should be required. I think that consent is what's needed. You are listening to Raven Debriefs. Subscribe, comment, and share on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Ariel Duranger with an impassioned primer on the recommendation from the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples called FPIC. Ariel is a member of Athabasca Chippewan Nation who live at the epicenter of Canada's tar sands and have for generations faced the health, social, and environmental consequences of living adjacent to the largest industrial project on earth. What does free prior and informed consent mean? What does it really mean? In Canada, we talk a lot about consultation all the time. We're like, oh, we did consultation, and consultation is basically FPIC, but it's not. Because free prior informed consent is four steps. It's free of coercion, intimidation, um, and, and bribery. And, and prior means before. So beforehand, before, so before, without coercion, without intimidation, without bribery, and along before projects are getting like signed off, they need to have the proper information. So they need to have access to all the best available information and then make a determination of consent, which is yes or no. And in Canada, all we do is go, we had a meeting with you, we told you everything, it's all good. I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind they end up in this situation because of a failure of leadership by the provincial and federal governments. It's a failure that is systemic. It's a failure that spans generations, that spans governments of all political color. Every provincial government in BC, dating back to the founding of the province, has taken a position of denial. They deny that Aboriginal title exists. And now we have a different government that may in public say things that sound very progressive, 
The reality is, on the ground and in court, they continue to deny the existence of Aboriginal title. By doing that, they end up shouldering a much lesser legal burden when they have to engage with Indigenous people on any kind of project. Reading from the Coldwater decision on the Trans Mountain Project, quote, where there is genuine disagreement about whether a project is in the public interest, the law does not require that the interests of Indigenous people prevail. While the parties challenging Cabinet's decisions are fully entitled to oppose the project, reconciliation and the duty to consult do not provide them with a veto over projects such as this one. They need to meet their requirements as set out in the TMX Coldwater case of duty to consult. That's not a substantive right. It's a procedural right that Indigenous people have to ensure that there's an opportunity to meet, there's an opportunity to express your concerns. In certain situations, there may be a responsibility on government to make changes. But at the end of the day, we get back to the same place, that government, as long as it follows the proper processes, can force through these different projects. That all goes back to a position of denial. If government took the position of recognizing the existence of Aboriginal title, which it can, there's this fallacy out there that that can only be done through court cases. And as a lawyer, I, you would expect me perhaps to say, hey, yeah, this needs lawyers. It doesn't need lawyers. This can be decided between provincial, federal government, and Indigenous peoples. The courts have said this over and over again. You can, don't need to come back here all the time. We saw that in the Delgamook decision itself, where the court said, if you're going to require a court decision, yes, you have to have a retrial, but you can work this out yourselves. You can come to a recognition agreement if the provincial and federal government wanted to do it. They don't. They don't do it, I expect, because of their concern that what would be required of them. Well, what would be required would be to respect the existence of Aboriginal title. And what that means under Canadian law, it's important to keep in mind that even in the Silkotine decision, where we had our first declaration of title, that didn't create title. Title was always there. It lifted the lie of denial. A declaration of Aboriginal title over the area requested should be granted. The task is to identify how pre-sovereignty rights and interests can properly find expression in modern common law terms. Aboriginal title flows from occupation in the sense of regular and exclusive use of land. To ground Aboriginal title, occupation must be sufficient, continuous, where present occupation is relied on, and exclusive. That's what that declaration did. And now the provincial and federal governments can't deny it any longer. That was the fight, stopping them from denying the existence of title. They could do that all across BC. That could, that could be done as a matter of fact 
what you hear all the time is we need certainty. Certainty. I'm all in favor of certainty. My clients, who are all indigenous people, they're in favor of certainty too. But it's actually the government that takes advantage of the uncertainty. If we had certainty, we wouldn't have these kinds of situations where indigenous people are trying to express their Aboriginal type, are trying to express their indigenous laws. And there's no forum for it to be taken seriously. The frustration that it creates, not just in BC, but across the country. And I think fundamentally the cynicism that it sows is a real problem for all of Canada. If Indigenous people are pushed to the position where they no longer have faith in the Canadian legal system, that's a problem for the country as a whole. And the responsibility for that lies at the feet of the provincial and federal governments. There is a lovely book that John Burroughs just recently published, Laws, Indigenous Ethics, that talks about reconciliation in its legal meaning through the seven grandfather teachings of the Anishinaabe. And I remember in particular the chapter on humility, where he talks about how do we reconcile the tension where you have indigenous title and possibly proven indigenous title, and then you have fee simple interest in land by other Canadians, they own property. And that was not the case. So what happens? And he is, first of all, assuming that finally the court system and primarily actually Canadian politicians finally take action based on what the Supreme Court said long ago, that this should not go through the courts every single nation, every single time. This should recognition of Aboriginal title in principle is the groundwork for negotiation. And that's where humility comes in. And he can see various options for how that might work with private property, whether Canada or the province compensates the nation for somebody having a ranch in the title lands, or whether the ranch derives its legitimacy from the indigenous laws being applied in the title area. So you actually hold property based on indigenous law and or even dual under a dual system. So there is a lot of very, very nerdy and very interesting options that can happen when there is goodwill and humility on both sides and humility for him primarily consists in remembering on both indigenous and non-indigenous sides that our values and our laws are not absolute they're in relationship with each other this is important it's not just canadian law that exists in canada the courts have said over and over again, Indigenous people had their own laws long before Europeans showed up. And their laws continue to exist. How can you repeatedly have the Supreme Court of Canada, courts throughout the country, telling Indigenous people, Section 35 respects their laws. We are a country of law. And the law includes Indigenous law. And then when you go to try to actually enforce it, Canadian courts say, sorry, there's no way to do it. That's a real problem. From the Supreme Court of Canada 1997 ruling on Delgamook, the appellants, all Gitsan or Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, 
both individually and on behalf of their houses, claimed separate portions of 58,000 square kilometers in British Columbia. The appellants sought a declaration of Aboriginal title, but attempted, in essence, to prove that they had complete control over the territory. It follows that what the appellants sought by way of declaration and what they set out to prove by way of evidence were two different matters. A new trial should be ordered. Delgamuth said that in order to, one of the requirements to prove Aboriginal title, you have to be able to show that you could exercise exclusive control of your land. So putting up the roadblock is an indicia of Aboriginal title. So a roadblock can be an exercise of Aboriginal title. Again, this is where the rule of law gets really dicey, where a lot of Indigenous people across the country, and I get this all the time, say, why doesn't Canada follow its own laws? Aren't we exercising Canadian law here? We have title. It doesn't require a court decision to say we have title. The only reason that there's any question is because the province keeps denying it. That denial exploded this winter at a checkpoint established by Wet'suwet'en people set up to prevent the encroachment of industry and police into their unceded traditional territory. The nations had set up a healing center and camp to reoccupy their ancestral lands and protect their territory. However, the courts issued an injunction against the land protectors. When they refused to leave their territory, police moved in to forcibly remove them from the land. The arrests started before dawn. In all, RCMP took six people into custody and dismantled the camp. Land defenders, as they call themselves, have been blocking access to the site for months. They've been oppressed by government. Those laws have been forced underground. Doesn't mean they don't exist. They're there. So when the Wet'suwet'en, anyone else across the country, stands up and says, we have our own laws. Our law says you need our permission to use our lands. You don't have our permission, you can't use our lands. We're going to evict you from the lands. That's a perfect exercise of Indigenous law. By our law, you cannot stop us. We are peaceful people, but we do have a right to be on our territory. What is your answer? Chiefs have been hoping to halt construction of a $6 billion pipeline meant to carry liquefied natural gas to port on the B.C. coast. We recognize uh, the important democratic right and we will always defend it uh, of peaceful protest. This is an important part of our democracy in Canada. But we're also a country of the rule of law and we need to make sure those laws are respected. When you hear about the rule of law, the rule of law in Canada includes Indigenous law. The problem is that the courts then struggle with how do we give that life? And the injunction decision that led to the enforcement is one of the most serious examples of the courts not finding a way forward to respect Indigenous law. 
In the Coastal Gaslink Injunction decision, Madam Justice Church finds that, quote, while Wet'suwet'en customary laws clearly exist on their own independent footing, they are not recognized as being an effectual part of Canadian law. Raven is supporting two legal challenges with Wet'suwet'en. The first, brought by all hereditary chiefs of the nation, is a judicial review made to the extension of Coastal Gas Link's pipeline permit. The case cites over 50 permit violations recorded by Wet'suwet'en witnesses and rings the alarm about the threat of industrial worker camps being situated in Indigenous territory. Anyone who's done any work in these, this industry knows that part of the problem is the boom and bust resource development extractive industries. And it's a problem for the people that become involved. They may make a lot of money in the short term, but longer term, it's not sustainable. It causes a lot of community problems and it causes real problems for Indigenous people, particularly for Indigenous women. Indigenous women are disproportionately affected by these types of developments. This is Frida Hewson. Wet'suwet'en matriarch and one of the founders of the Healing Centre. We decided to build this Healing Centre to bring our own people out here and bring healing to them spiritually, mentally, physically, and use this space to make our people strong. Like the residential schools were used to take the Indian out of the child. We want to use this facility to put the Indian back in our children, meaning our culture. If our people have our culture, they'll be strong and they'll be able to stand on their own two feet and we'll have a strong nation to learn to take care of ourselves and take care of our resources, take care of the land. If we take care of our land, then the land will take care of us. And this is the voice of Dr. Carla Tate, clinical psychologist and member of Unistotten clan of Wet'suwet'en Nation. Because so much of that for us is based on our, our land and our connection to the land and all the teachings. In short, I would see uh, those projects, especially the ones proposed to run through this territory as, as a threat to us reclaiming and self-determining our own health and wellness. That's that's how people heal, that's how people reconnect. So to have a man camp built just a little ways away from a healing center that's intended to protect the most vulnerable, protect indigenous women, I think for all Canadians, that should become a focal point for them. There's obviously something wrong here. Which side are we gonna take? Are we going to take the short-term resource extraction? Or are we going to think about generations into the future? The perfect storm, it got to me. I wasn't there, I'm not guilty. I can put myself at the senior that's right. They pull me in, they spit me out. They set me off and sell me drowned. And I just smile and laugh. 
Chantel Kreviazek playing with Kevin Fox at the We Are the Stronghold Benefit Concert for Wet Sowen that took place in Toronto on February 29th. You're listening to Raven Debriefs. Subscribe, comment, and share on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The Wet'suwet'en Section 91 and Charter Challenge to me is a particularly exciting case because of its sophisticated long-term implications for the entirety of the country and for future generations in terms of climate. So there is, there have been a few cases launched in various jurisdictions uh, on behalf of future generations and climate change, whether the defendant is a company we've seen with Shell or whether it's governments and we haven't yet seen the outcome of them but this is certainly one of the most novel and the the more exciting of those. It looks at the section 91 of the constitution which talks about Canada's obligation to ensure peace order and good government and the claim from the Wet'suwet'en side is that by passing laws that prevent Canada from acting on climate change in the case of permits that have already been given to these corporations that extract fossil fuels like coastal gas link for in some cases for 40 years once those permits are done under current laws canada can do anything even if we are in a state of emergency that will dwarf the current coronavirus in maybe five years so that's one piece where canada is failing its own section 91 and that's one piece of that case then there is the other piece, which is the charter, which guarantees life, liberty, and security of person and prevents discrimination. And again, with climate change, the Wet'suwet'en are saying our territory is already being impacted. It's being impacted disproportionately. Future generations will suffer and they lay out exactly how. And so that's another duty of ensuring equity and equality that Canada is failing on. The promise would be that Canada would be forced to then pass laws that enable it 
to take rapid action on climate change and withdraw permits if it is shown that a particular project would blast us past our global warming commitments, which we now cannot do. Um, the Coastal Gas Link initially got a permit for 25 years and it has been extended to 40. So that means that the Wet'suwet'en territories in particular could become a wasteland before the proponent even has to move out of their territory. Promise would be that Canada would finally have a set of laws that enable it to take action to protect all of us from climate change. And we know that we will all suffer. Not everybody will suffer equally. And indeed, the Wet'suwet'en make a detailed factual case of how they are disproportionately impacted just by virtue of the, their geography and where they are. But taking emissions down and moving away from fossil fuels will protect all of us. And that's the promise of this case and, and an absolutely heroic act, I would call it, at this time in history where they're dealing so with so many other things. From the case filed February 2020. The plaintiffs experience global warming in two ways, as a threat and as a responsibility. It is a threat to their identity, to their culture, to their relationships with the land and the life on it, and to their food security. It is a responsibility because large fossil fuel infrastructure projects are proposed across their territories. Under the Wet'suwet'en legal order, a house group is responsible to other Wet'suwet'en, to other peoples, and to the spirit in the land for all acts on its territory. Reconciliation, and this has really come to the forefront now, it's not new, but particularly over the last few years, for a lot of Indigenous people that I deal with on a daily basis, the word itself has become a four-letter word. One of the main reason is because it's trying to reconcile a right with a lie. So the right pre-exists. The right for Aboriginal title, we knew that in the Calder decision back in 1973. Indigenous people were here, settled on the land with their own laws. They have a right to the land. In fact, when British Columbia was established as a colony, that was British law. British law at the time was, unless you conquer Indigenous people, unless you sign a treaty, you must respect their existing land rights. That was the law. The British knew that they were on really slippery slope here because they were denying title. And now we have 150 years of that. So what are you trying to reconcile? You're trying to reconcile the right that Indigenous people had at the time that the colony was established to their own laws with a lie that somehow non-Indigenous people can just gain an interest in Indigenous land. This goes back to the doctrine of discovery. Someone shows up, Captain Cook comes sailing in. Somehow you get a right to the land. The court uses the term the assertion of crown sovereignty. That's the term that's used. Really, that's just a euphemism for the doctrine of discovery. That's what the court's referring to. And it's been reputed all around the world. Yet it's the fundamental basis of Canadian law. The entire constitution, the idea that the federal and provincial government could divide up these powers that the provincial governments get control of in quotes, crown land. It all dates back to that fundamental lie. And that's why it's really hard to achieve reconciliation because you have 
indigenous people saying, your own laws say that we have the right to the land. And now you want us to reconcile? Reconcile with what? That you've just usurped control of the land. That's very, very, very difficult for indigenous people across the country. We have been called the Indians. We have been called Native American. We have been called hostile. We have been called pagan. We have been called militant. We are not a conquered people. We really need to be focusing on how we change the game to look at this like this idea of not just giving communities the ability to say yes and no, but giving communities the rights to manage our lands and territories, and that means giving us our land back. Land back is this movement that's predicated under this idea that in that indigenous peoples need to have their lands given back to us, and that that will springboard new regenerative economies, that this will springboard new conservation models that don't just empower our communities, but that help us achieve what's necessary to, to conserve the wild spaces and biodiversity and achieve climate stabilization and redistribute the power dynamics and achieve true climate justice. I remember being in the Supreme Court when the Haida case was argued. It was really interesting because on the left, supporting the Haida was the village of Port Clements on Haida Kauai, which the vast majority of the inhabitants of that little place, non-Indigenous people working for the forestry company. And I remember the look on the Chief Justice's face when their lawyer got up and introduced who his client was, all these non-Indigenous people working for the forestry company, and they were here to support the Haida. They weren't there to support their employer. And for me, that was a really important moment because it was one of those ones that crystallized when non-Indigenous people realize that their real interests may not side with the companies may not side with the provincial government, it sides with indigenous people. Because the indigenous people are more likely to have a much longer vision about protecting the land, about protecting the waters, about sustainable communities, sustainable economies. And that's actually, um, that's actually supported by science. They're finding that when land tenure is returned to Indigenous communities or when communities are given the jurisdiction and control over their land, biodiversity increases, regenerative economies start to be developed, and the health and mental well-being of communities increases. And that's what we really need to be working towards. That's what climate justice looks like. And it's under the auspice of free prior informed consent and the idea of land back, of our us and our communities having the ability to have control not just over ourselves as an autonomous individual, but the collective needs of our communities.
it's time we act to honor the rights and title of Indigenous peoples, whose caretaker values are encoded in the laws that spring from millennia's worth of understanding and interrelationship. To get there, we invite all of you to follow the heroic lead of the Wet'suwet'en and do what you can to support the nation as they take both a judicial review of Coastal GasLink and a visionary climate challenge to court. You can donate, set up online fundraising, reach out to friends and family to contribute to Raven's Wet'suwet'en Legal Fund. Huge gratitude to the drummers and singers of Unistoten Clan, to Bruce McIver, Anna Simeon, Ariel Deranger, Frida Houston, and Dr. Carla Tate for coming on today's episode, and to producers Andrea Palferman and Rutendo Chibiqua. The voices you heard today reading from Supreme Court rulings and filings included Janice Browning, Lyle Rotke, and Rutendo Chibiqua. Music is by Chantal Graviazic, Kevin Fox, Chris Dirksen, Bear Witness, Witch Prophet, and Luke Wallace. Raven Debriefs is available on our website at raventrust.com, on iTunes and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Now, here's Bear Witness with lyrics by John Trudell to take us out. Thank you.